0: Welcome to Tell, a podcast about true stories and how we tell them. Tell is a project of the low-residency MFA program in narrative nonfiction at the University of Georgia's College of Journalism and Mass Communication. I'm your host, Josina Guess. On today's show, we get an inside look at the award-winning anthology, Bigger Than Bravery, Black Resilience and Reclamation in a Time of Pandemic published in 2022 by Lookout Books and edited by the late Valerie Boyd. Publishers Weekly listed Bigger Than Bravery among their big indie books of fall, Library Journal named it one of the best books of 2022, and Forward Indies named it the silver winner for anthologies. It also won Georgia Author of the Year Award for specialty book. In the first half of the show, you'll hear my conversation with Katoya Ellis Fleming, editor at Lookout Books and assistant professor of publishing arts in the creative writing department at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Katoya is also a proud alumna of the MFA in Narrative Nonfiction program at UGA. You'll also be hearing from special guests reading excerpts from their essays in Bigger Than Bravery. Katoya, it is so great to see you. And thanks it's for joining here. wonderful to, to
1: see you. I'm so glad to be here.
0: Yeah. And full disclosure to our listeners, I had the pleasure of contributing to Bigger Than Bravery. And it's just such a joy to connect with you and celebrate this special book.
1: So I'm thrilled. You
0: served as midwife to this collection. And how was this anthology conceived and born?
1: Oh, I, I love this anthology of midwifery. Valerie, as you know, was my mentor in this program. And When I called her to talk to her about my new appointment as editor at Lookout, we started having conversations about what I envisioned my first acquisition for the imprint um, being. And she said, oh, well, you know, I have this proposal that I'd love for you to take a look at. And so she sent it to me and I looked at it and I called her back and I was like, yeah, 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 something like this. I'd love to to publish something like this. And she was like, no, no, no. I want you to publish this. I thought, you know, that we were just having a conversation. It never really occurred to me that she would entrust me as a fledgling editor at a small indie press to publish this big, important work. I was really thankful, really grateful to be able to not only be a part of what I think is a a really monumental piece of literary history, but also to work with Valerie, particularly on her last publication.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about what that was like to to switch from being Valerie's student to then being her editor and the editor of other writers that you have, in the canon of of literature that you've admired and now you're um, working as editor. It
1: was surreal. One of the most fulfilling opportunities of my career thus far. But more than being afraid of it, I was able to just give thanks to be in that moment. Opal Moore is one of the poets who contributed to uh, the anthology, and Opal Moore was my professor of poetry at Spelman College as an undergrad. So t- to be able to have that full circle moment and edit her poetry and hold it with the care that she had given my work previously just meant a lot. It meant a lot to to be charged with the responsibility of helping these writers that I love and admire usher their words into the world in this way.
0: And- and also just tell me a little bit more about the themes of the book. You know, um, some might argue that a pandemic is a timed moment, but but clearly like racial reckoning and the pandemic are part of a continuum rather than a single moment. But how. Yeah. Can you talk? About sure. Yeah. I
1: don't themes? often quote. Faulkner. But when I do, I say the past is not dead. It's not even past. And so that was one of the things that Valerie and I talked about, along with our publisher, Emily Smith, when we were molding the book into what it would eventually become. When Valerie proposed the book, she was playing with a different title. It was something like Black and Brown Writers Respond to the pandemic and uprising and something of 2020. And then she had this other language that she liked to the year that changed the world. And certainly all those things were true. and, And several of the essays in the book are responding to the ways that people reclaimed joy and comfort during the pandemic, but we were living through also the moment of George Floyd's murder, which certainly happened at a time where that incident caused the community to reach a boiling point. But also that incident is not an isolated incident, not the the first or the last senseless racially motivated the Black community has or will have to endure. There was something about... These essays being informed by a moment in time, but speaking to all of time, past, present and future. And so settling on Black resilience and reclamation in a time of pandemic was a way to acknowledge the moment that inspired the work, but also indicate that the work is reaches beyond that moment in time.
0: And can you tell me just how you have grown as a writer and teacher and editor in these in this process of working with this book?
1: Yeah, I love that all of those different hats that I that I wear get to inform each other in this sort of serendipitous way. I think I am a better editor because I'm a writer and I think I'm a better writer because I'm an editor. And I think the the joy that I get from writing my own stories and helping other people make their stories the best they can be informs the way that I approach the work in my classrooms. I want my students to to be able to yes learn the skills yes understand the mechanics but also be able to to feel that joy the joy of discovery there's joy in the discovery of a story that you're telling or of a story that you're you're helping a, a writer excavate the details and the emotions of and so I get a lot of excitement from nerding out in front of a classroom and imparting that to my students. So I think all of those things work together in a way that is really beneficial to me as an artist. And Bigger Than Bravery was a big part of that, as it was my maiden voyage into this world when I started at UNCW. So I know, in fact, that it was one of the things that made Valerie excited to work with Lookout. She loved the idea that Bigger Than Bravery was going to be a teaching book. And, you know, get it we were, it was still in the middle of COVID at that time, so we would be on Zoom. She was on Zoom with the students and they were just, you know, enthralled. Yeah. You know, they hung on her every word, you know, as she, you know, talked to them about her vision for the book, her what an ideal cover would look like. And, I mean, you've met Valerie, you know. <laughs> you know how she could just capture an audience. And it was it was beautiful to see her engage with our students in that way and for them to get to learn from her. It was tough to to move through the process without her. We were not prepared for... I mean not that you can ever be prepared but it was very much a surprise to lose her at that point in the process and but I think it also made it so much more imperative to do it in a way that would allow us to continue to pay homage to her with its with its debut into the world it also felt in some ways like a gift That she left us, that she left not only me, but so many of the writers in the book, yourself included, were, you know, men and people who had relationships with her. My hope with publishing the book is that, is now and was then, that it's something that she would have been proud of, and I feel pretty confident that she would be.
0: Itoia Ellis Fleming, thank you so much for your time and for your work on this book.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Josina.
0: Here's Lolis Eric Eli, reading an excerpt from his essay, A Survivor Looks Back.
2: How did I survive the pandemic? I knew one day you would ask that question, even now, this long after the worst ravages. I don't know that I can answer. I know this, even as the virus began making its leap from animals to humans, people thought it couldn't happen. Therefore, it wasn't happening. People could never be that savage to each other. Even that is a lie and the epidemiologists knew it. We took consolation where we could though, When one theory of solace had to be abandoned because it brought us neither safety nor comfort, we simply traded it for another. At first we felt safe because the disease was occurring far away and therefore could not affect us directly. Then the virus hit via video screen. The nation and the world watched on repeat as a man named George Floyd struggled for more than nine minutes, clinging to life, begging for life, then losing life as the knee of the virus held fast its grip on the poor man's neck. In that moment, we lost our innocence. We thought, if the virus could do that to him, then could it not do the same to me? That graphic tragedy spurred us from angry acceptance into action. While many cowered behind locked doors and semi-permeable masks for protection, hundreds and thousands of people took to the streets, risking life and liberty in their determined to fight for a cure. We had hope then, because even though we knew there were small pockets of social scientists here and there working on policies that might one day fell this virus, never before had so many people been willing to risk everything in the single effort to do to that virus what it had done so mercilessly to so many of us. The authorities warned us to stay home. They said we should leave this fight to the experts and not take matters into our own hands but they had no credibility having so consistently failed to develop even a semblance of a solution. We knew our only hope was with each other. Even that hope was short-lived. It was as if the authorities were in cahoots with the virus itself, each in turn attacking the most heroic among us, specifically for the determination to rid the world of that troublesome plague. In Denver, the authorities gassed people Elizabeth Epps, a member of the Denver Police Department's Use of Force Committee, resigned that post after she was shot by police projectiles. In Houston, authorities on horseback trampled the woman, and New York officers continued to beat people with clubs even after they had already been felled to the ground. In Columbus, they pepper-sprayed Congresswoman Joyce Beatty. Sometimes in those days, you would toss and turn or even wake in your bed as if accosted in your sleep by some terrible vision. Were you dreaming of tear gas and pepper spray, of virus and violence? I would sleep with you then, providing whatever comfort I could. And in those wee hours, it seemed that we have always been in pandemic times of one kind or another. But perhaps it wouldn't always be thus. I thought that if I could only keep you alive through that current unpleasantness, then perhaps from the loins of your son's son's daughter's daughter, a cure for this terrible virus might emerge. I thought that if I could survive long enough to keep you alive, then there might be hope that we as a people could outlive these wars and the wars to come. This is the faith to which I held fast. Oh, how did I survive the pandemic? I was lucky.
0: Here's Rosalind Bentley reading from Iron and Brass, her essay in Bigger Than Bravery.
3: Spring 2020 promised house proud dinners, brunches and cocktail parties with friends. Some real George and Wheezy Jefferson moving on up type living. Yet the new year dawned and news segments about a virus spreading in China soon shifted to 24-hour coverage of worldwide sickness, fear, and immeasurable loss. The house is near a hospital. As the thunder from air ambulances grew more and more frequent each day, we knew things were getting worse. Shelter in place, they told us. We were fortunate. We could. But with each day of lockdown, each Netflix marathon and takeout meal for two eaten from styrofoam containers, thoroughly wiped down with sanitizing wipes after touchless front door delivery, our forever home grew into something else. It became a reminder of who and what got us here, got me here, to this place of enormous privilege, protection, and shelter, a testament to the fear pain, endurance, and hope that willed my family into existence. I sit in the family room gazing at the backyard beyond the French doors. Mammoth pine trees cast dappled shade and a fire pit surrounded by cedars and Adirondack chairs beckon up a small hill. Skirls won't give the cardinals room at the bird feeder The pool looks like a relic from a decommissioned Howard Johnson's hotel circa 1980, but the water is clear and a great relief on sweltering days. Through the French doors beyond the herb garden we planted for seasoning and pandemic sanity, I can see a cast iron wash pot I placed as an accent in the garden. Once jet black, it now has a thin coating of rust that makes it look ashy. When I look At the Iron Belly, I think of a story told many times during my extended family's all-night rounds of bidwis at my aunt's house in Mariana in Jackson County, Florida. The tale is as indelible a mark on my childhood as the fishing lessons my aunts gave me on the shore of our backwoods pond. Families are their stories, both fact and lore. The utterings bind they fill where the official record gapes. For Black families especially, people whose ancestors were often legally barred from learning to read and write, the stories are sometimes all we have. The iron pot was my maternal great-great-grandmother's. She hauled water on my family's North Florida farm, filling the cauldron and heating it outside over an open flame. In it, she churned clothes clean, most likely with a large wooden oar powered by the strength of her dark brown arms, hands, and back. She washed on land my ancestors bought acre by acre after emancipation, selling their own eggs, corn, beef, and cotton until they amassed 300 acres. Those strong arms and hands of hers also delivered babies, black and white, on farms along their small stretch of the Chattahoochee River. I'd like to think she was paid to bring life into this world, but as my relatives told it, her gift would be disrespected in a vile and common way.
0: Thank you so much for listening. This show was produced by Diana Keough and edited by Amy Padula. With special thanks to MFA director Moni Basu for nurturing this writing program and this podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening and will take time to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoyed it, we'd appreciate you sharing it with your friends. Thanks for listening.